This is Balkan Devlin. I am a senior fellow here at McDonald Laurier Institute, and this is the Institute's premium podcast, Podcast Canada. Today, we will be talking about societal resilience and how to build a better, more resilient society with two great experts joining me today. We have today Elizabeth Brawl. She is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security threats, such as hybrid and gray zone threats. She's also a columnist with foreign policy, where she writes on national security and globalized economy, and a member of the National Preparedness Commission in the UK. Before joining the American Enterprise Institute, she was a senior research fellow at Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies, Rusi in London, where she founded its Modern Deterrence Project. She has also been an associate fellow at the European Leadership Network, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and a senior consultant at Control Risks, a global risk consultancy. She has a background in journalism and has published in a variety of publications, including The Economist, Foreign Affairs, The Times, as well as The Wall Street Journal. She had a very interesting uh, recent book published called God Spies, the studies, Stasi's Cold War Espionage Campaign Inside the Church. Welcome, Elizabeth. And we also have MLI's very own Marcus Kolga, the, perhaps uh, one of the leading experts on disinformation in Canada and a world-renowned uh, human rights activist. Marcus is also the founder of uh, MLI's most recent project, DisinfoWatch. He has been analyzing and exposing foreign disinformation and influence campaigns since 2007. He regularly writes and comments in Canadian and international media on foreign disinformation and Central and Eastern European issues. And his documentary films has been screened or broadcast across North America and Europe. Marcus has spoken and testified in the US Capitol and in the UK, Australian, Canadian, and Estonian parliaments about Magnuson sanctions, who he has been at the forefront and a vocal voice and advocate for in North America and Europe. And he has also talked about and testified on Russian disinformation and Interpol reform. Great to have you, Marcus. So let me talk a little bit about the reason why we're doing this podcast. Recently, over the weekend, we hold a, a NATO public diplomacy division supported workshop on how to build a more resilient society. Resilience here in this sense can be thought in a more broad scope, not only related to economic resilience or personal resilience, but societal resilience from critical infrastructure to cognitive infrastructure to deal with disinformation, misinformation, hybrid threats, political warfare and subversion and beyond. It was a very productive workshop in which hopefully we will be putting out a policy brief that reflects the discussions in that in that workshop. And both Marcus and Elizabeth were part of the great workshop over the weekend that NATO helped us to, to put together. And this, this podcast is an extension of that. And we would like to go a little bit more in detail, a bit more in depth about some of the issues we have discussed, how to build a more resilient society, how the civil society and private actors can contribute 
to the building of resilience in the information space, in the infrastructure space, in the cognitive space, in the political space, and how our societies can be made resilient in the face of both external attempts to subvert our democracies and institutions, as well as domestic threats to the cohesion and, and resilience of our societies with regards to polarization and corruption and other, um, other threats that we do see today. So let me just get us started off with, with the first question. Uh, perhaps we can start with Elizabeth. In your opinion, when you look to, to the issues related with building resilience, what are the primary obstacles for building a more resilient society? Well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me on the podcast. So the, the primary or the most important obstacle is that we in the West have so little uh, experience, uh, we as, as the wider public, of being part of a communal or collective effort in our countries. So for, for 30 years, and in some countries even longer, there has been this, this culture or mentality fostered by decision makers and indeed the rest of society that, that all you need to do is to look after yourself. And, and that's fine when, when there are no problems affecting the whole of society. But when there are problems affecting the whole of society, it's not enough to just sort of go after your own happiness. Uh, you have to come together with your fellow citizens to help keep society safe. And that's what we are failing, and uh, not just in particular countries, but in every Western country, I'd say. And it's it's not that people are, are somehow unsuited to it, whereas during World War II, they somehow miraculously became the greatest generation. No, I mean, we're all, we all have the potential of making great contributions to our societies. We just have to, we just need to be told how to do it. And the government needs to, and, and other civil society actors, in fact, need to provide a framework for how we can do that. So it's, it's not a structural problem. It's just a, what you might call a, a mechanical one. Mm-hmm. So we, in, in a way, we do not have the muscle memory, right? In, in it, we don't sort of exercise that that muscle of, of being more resilient in the past 30 years and we didn't need, did not need to engage with a whole of society efforts and that's, that makes us vulnerable at this stage. Yes, and it's worth mentioning that, that the situation is better in some countries. So Finland, of course, has maintained its general setup of total defense and Estonia has pursued a similar path, maybe not as comprehensive as that of Finland, and, and Latvia is building up total defense as well, and Sweden, Sweden is resurrecting total defense. I myself grew up with total defense in Sweden, so even I have a bit of muscle memory of that. But those who are, let's say, 30 years uh, old and younger don't have that muscle memory. Now I've dated myself. <laughs> even, I, I mean, I remember it made international headlines a couple of years ago, Everything before COVID looks like ancient history right now, but where the, the Swedish government sent this this brochures to every household in Sweden about what to do in the case of a breakdown, including an invasion, right? Yes, and I'll, I'll let uh, Marcus come in after that, but uh, after this, but yes, the the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency updated. In fact, the Cold War uh, leaflet updated it to to include uh, contemporary crises, including cyber attacks and so forth. And they sent it to every household in the country by post because you have to bear in mind that if there is a cyber attack, you won't be able to access your digital copy of, of the leaflet online. And this was in May 2018. And when it was sent out, there was a lot of ridicule around the world. So the, the leaflet is called If Crisis of War Counts. 
there was a lot of ridicule around the world because the Swedes uh, seemed a bit paranoid. But then, and I remember myself speaking with certain government agencies in the UK, and I said, well, you know, I think it would be a, a great step for the UK to send out a similar leaflet because people need to be prepared. And they said, no, 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 it's, it would frighten people, they would panic. And lo and behold, in 2020, a crisis arrived and people were not prepared. Exactly, exactly. Marcus, um, what are the primary obstacles for building a more resilient society in Europe? Well, first of all, Balkan, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast and and to contribute and participate on on Saturday. And and let me say what an honor it is to be on this podcast with Elizabeth, whose expertise on this uh, issue I absolutely bow to. So thank you for both of you. You know, I I look at this this problem obviously from a more of a, a Canadian perspective, even though I do have some you know an Estonian background. So I I understand what's going on there and and keeping one eye on on what is happening in the Nordic countries, as Elizabeth mentioned, in, in Sweden, Finland, Estonia, in Latvia to a certain degree, and then looking and comparing it to what Canada is doing with regards to this. Um, you know, Canada has, quite frankly, utterly failed to, uh, the government at least, the current government, has failed to even really acknowledge the problem. What we've done is, uh, coming up on the, the federal election last year in 2019, we we did acknowledge it then. We set up uh, some infrastructure to deal with uh, foreign interference and uh, and information warfare targeting the election. That infrastructure remained in place for some uh, three to four months uh, in advance of the election. And as soon as the election was over, those institutions that were set up simply disappeared overnight, which leads me to believe that um, the current government sees disinformation and influence uh, operations as strictly a, a, a problem that affects elections, which is, I think, the primary obstacle that we face in this country in addressing the, the, the problem. You know, I think the, the other problem is that because we've allowed this to go on for as long as it has, um, we haven't followed our, you know, uh, our allies in, in the Nordic countries, the US, the UK, Taiwan, now we, we're, we're facing a growing, growing polarization. And in my everyday work uh, right now with disinfowatch.org, I'm keeping an eye on, on some of the narratives that are emerging. Obviously, we've shifted largely, especially the foreign actors um, have shifted towards uh, COVID-related narratives, vaccine-related narratives. But conspiracy theories continue to be a, a dominant uh, narrative, and, uh, and they're plugging into the uncertainty and the, the emotional situation that COVID has sort of brought on in, in Canada. And we're failing to address that. What's, what's happening is that it's those narratives are simply growing and they are dividing our country more than ever. It's polarizing us. And right now we're not doing anything to address that. And I think that deepening polarization and the enabling effect that, that social media has on uh, promoting those sorts of narratives I think it represents an existential threat to our democracy and society as we know it today. And if we don't address it and work with our international allies in addressing it, we're, we're in for real trouble. Exactly. I mean, uh, two, two things perhaps are, are quite, I think, crucial in, in, in your comments here. One is that given how vast Canada is and how sort of distribution of both you know, physical infrastructure and, and the sort of identities and how people are, are uh, connected to the country, it is very important to develop a coherent strategy to deal with a variety of 
potential threats to societal resilience and, and, and very importantly, the cognitive component, the, the fact that we're not taking it as seriously as, as we should and just see that as you know, some a blip in the charts when it is around elections, I think is a huge problem. And the second, if you can talk a little bit on that, which would provide us a segue to my, my other question about misinformation, disinformation. Canada seems to be a ground for a variety of actors that are engaging in these information operations, influence operations, from, from the Chinese Communist Party to, to, to Russia to Iran and others, uh, which, you know, some of our allies may be facing one or the other, but Canada has been you know, a, a playground in, in a way for all these um, influence operations. And, and that, has, that has taken its toll. Could you elaborate a little bit on, on this play field of this information? Well, happily, there, there are two points uh, on that. First is, is that Canada remains, I mean, we, we identify ourselves as a middle power, but, you know, I think we're a little bit more than that. You know, Canada does hold a great deal of influence uh, within international institutions and our transatlantic institutions like NATO, within the G7. And I think in, in the UN also, we have a pretty strong voice. And we've taken some pretty strong actions, especially in the post-Crimea world. We've uh, we've taken a very strong position on on Ukrainian sovereignty over Crimea, on Donbass. Uh, we have placed sanctions on Russian entities involved with that, and we've also adopted, you know, for example, Magnitsky sanctions back in in 2017. So, you know, I think in the Russian context, I think the Russians see Canada as a place where they can try and influence policy in hopes of influencing in influencing broader policy. The second point is that I think that we have Canada's uh, multicultural diversity introduces some significant opportunities for some of these regimes to try and influence through those communities and influence Canada's foreign policy. With the Russian community, there are 600,000 Russian speakers in Canada. Um, There are well over a million Chinese Canadians. And so there are various different influence campaigns. Certainly Russian, uh, Russian language media, state media seeks to influence those communities in hopes that they will then broadcast their views and that the government will change their policies to, uh, to conform to those views. And, and the same goes for the Chinese community in Canada. Right now, we're, we're going through a fairly significant moment for the Chinese community, given what, how the, uh, Beijing is, the, the new laws that have been enacted in Hong Kong its aggression towards Taiwan, and certainly with the Uyghur and communities, I mean, there's a significant conflict that's brewing within the Chinese community. And I think that Beijing will, will want to take advantage of that. So those are sort of two points that, that I would have on that. Elizabeth, let me, let me turn to you with regards to disinformation, misinformation, and uh, particularly the relationship between how we can counter these attempts for you know, influencing our cognitive space, let me put it that way. Whack-a-mole structure is, doesn't look like to me a very effective way of dealing with a variety of a flood of, of disinformation uh, campaigns. But how can we be more proactively involved? And what can we do more proactively rather than just reacting to the disinformation campaigns when it comes to building a more resilient society? Yeah, I think the, the, the fundamental challenge that we have is the increasing distrust of, of authorities, whether it be government authorities, political parties, news media in our societies. And so I think over the past few years, as it has become essentially sort of a, almost a guilty pleasure of people to pass around 
uh, salacious uh, stories on the internet and, and, and because they don't really care. It's essentially like, like reading tabloids, but when you read the tabloid, yeah, you, you read it and then you put it in, in, the, in the recycling. But when you pass around and you may, may tell your, your friends about what you read, but when you, when you share links of similarly salacious content uh, on the internet, you obviously poison the public discourse much more. I think there has been growing awareness since 2016 US election, which was obviously a wake-up call for lots of people, even though people in many parts of Europe had previous encounters with disinformation. But it was a wake-up call that actually uh, disinformation is its not just a guilty pleasure, it is a real threat to our societies. So what do we do about it other than being more acting more responsibly on the internet? I think that the trust between ordinary citizens and news media can be restored. It is really broken in many cases, and, and people talk about mainstream media in a sort of pejorative sense. Uh, news organizations should do what legislators do, which is to have uh, what we call in the UK a surgery, and in other, other countries, I guess it's called an open house or office hours, a couple of hours each week or a couple of days uh, in some cases, where their legislators essentially are available to their constituents to talk about whatever their constituents are interested in. And I think that it's not perfect, but it, it gives constituents access to the MPs and they realize that they do work for us. And yes, in some cases, more in some cases, less, but there is a, that direct link. And I think news organizations should do the same thing. Obviously, they can't have offices in every little town everywhere, but they could do a sort of a, a, a national tour every now and then, set up a pop-up office in, in various towns and invite people to come in and talk to journalists and see how you make a TV show, see how you make a radio show, and see how you make a newspaper or a website. And people would discover that actually that it's not that nefarious. It's, it's just people going about their work. There's great potential there. And then uh, obviously the standard answers of disinformation or information literacy in school that should be taught more, which who could argue with that? Mm. The, the idea of, of you know, putting a human face to that dis- nondescript media would, uh, would probably increase the trust in, in, in people with regards to what, what these people are doing and why they should not really take into account that you know, there are some puppets in the, they're just puppets and there are some puppet masters behind media that try to sort of manipulate everything up. So I think that's that's actually an excellent and a very low cost if you think about it. It's a, it's a very sort of effective, high you know, benefit uh, to cost ratio action of building better bridges and improving trust. A local citizen, one of the people who came in to visit, could be invited to to select the stories for the next day uh, or, or segments uh, in case of, of radio and TV. And they would realize that, yeah, you have to make the decision between a, a wide array of news developments. And, and if something doesn't get covered, doesn't mean that there is a sort of conspiracy against it. It's just it competes with a large number yeah. <laughs> of stories from around the country and indeed from around the world. Exactly. Marcus, you are sort of one of the leading experts on, on disinformation in Canada, and you, you have been into disinformation before it's cool, if I may put it in those terms. So could you give us sort of a couple ideas about how we can proactively deal with this rather than just trying to react to whatever our adversaries are doing each time they, they launch a new information operation? Sure. Before that, I just want to pick up on a point that Elizabeth made about uh, about journalists. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm seeing is is amongst these conspiracy theorists and this growing movement is a is a doubt 
or the, that these conspiracy theorists try to cast doubt on mainstream media and uh, established journalists. And one of the things that I was doing uh, before COVID in some of my lectures is, is I tried to humanize journalists. You know, they're constantly accused of having biases. And, and quite frankly, journalists are human beings and they do have biases and we need to sort of acknowledge that. However, journalists are also professional journalists, the ones that work in mainstream media, at large uh, international and national newspapers and television. They are trained to put their biases aside. And this is one of the things that I think we need to keep reminding our citizens of, certainly in Canada, that, um, that these, while these biases exist, you can trust mainstream media and established media because they have policies in place. They have corrections policies. They have editorial policies that ensure that there are facts that are being reported on and not just you know, wild opinions and conspiracies. So this, I think, needs to be part of a broader, at least in the Canadian context, a broader digital media literacy training that needs to be done. We, sh we should be looking at countries like Sweden and, and Finland as to how we start doing this at a very early age, because right now we're falling behind. Some of the other things that we can start doing, at least in, in the Canadian context, is, is establishing, for instance, an independent office, an agency that has the power to coordinate a sort of a whole of government and whole of society response to the problem of disinformation. Again, there are other countries that are doing this in bits and pieces. The US is doing this, you know, the Global Engagement Center is doing quite a good job. The UK has developed policies to push back and, and Taiwan, I think, is, is a great leader. I think we need to look at those countries. And what we should also be doing is that we should be working with them to create a coordinated response among our allies. Because, you know, working on this alone or duplicating efforts, there's, there's not much point to it. This is, a, this is a common problem that we see sort of across the board. And one of the most important things that I think that we need to start doing here in Canada is addressing the problem with the same sort of seriousness and, and the terms that our enemies are. And we need to acknowledge that what we're engaged in is information warfare and that the primary target is the undermining of our nation, our government and society. So using terms like uh, meddling or monkey business, these sorts of things, you know, I think it takes away from the seriousness of the problem. And it also requires that our government takes it seriously as a public safety issue. So ensuring that our response includes ministries like public safety, national defense, and foreign affairs. Because right now, I mean, it's, it's just beyond me why the Ministry of Heritage, so this is the ministry that is uh, responsible for culture in Canada, it's the ministry that's primary respons primarily responsible for funding any sort of a civil society and government response to this. And, you know, if we, if we continue approaching it this way, I'm not sure that we're going to address the problem uh, successfully. Gives me, I think, a very nice segue to, to another topic, and that is one that Elizabeth raised during the workshop: is that this is not only a government, or should not be only a government effort, right? This should be a more broad effort. How can we involve private sector and, and the broader civil society? Yes. Yeah, so, I remember a few years ago, people started talking about the whole of government approach, and that felt very novel and, and this, the talk is still about a whole of government approach but the, the reality is our adversaries deploy a much wider range of actors so it's it's totally insufficient for us to respond just with the government uh, because our governments are small our governments don't have the power to command the rest of society what to do or tell them what to do in a, in a crisis or command them in a particular action so 
we need the, uh, a whole of society approach and, and that's nothing new that's that's what total de defense is based on but somehow it seems new now that we have been as i said for 30 years or so we've been used, used to not doing very much for the common good when it comes to national security and that by the way involves includes the, the private sector so the private sector hasn't been asked to do anything apart from going out and making money and, and making our countries more prosperous well that's a that's a worthy uh, activity but now we need them to do more to, to help keep the country safe so something that I've proposed, for example, is joint military industry gray zone exercises where the, the armed forces and key companies would exercise defense against uh, and response to gray zone attacks. And that, of course, can be anything from cyber attacks to disruption of supply chains. And, and the point is that at the moment, we don't exercise for such things. So if, if it were to happen, and, and it did happen, in a, in, not in a hostile way, but it did happen during the early stages of, of COVID-19, that countries weren't getting PPE, we can exercise for those things. And one of NATO's member states is actually about to launch its very first, very first exercise of this kind. So... That's all very positive, and I think other countries will follow. And, and of course, I'm thrilled for myself because it's my idea, but it's, it's not because it's, it's me. It's because it's, I, I think, what we need, not just as a crisis response when, when something happens, but to demonstrate to our adversaries that we are prepared and that there is no point trying to attack our civil societies. So short of exercises, uh, I think there are lots of, of things uh, governments can do as well to, to involve the private sector. I think the very easiest and, and, and first steps they should take is to give regular consultations to not just to risk managers, but to top executives so that they have a good understanding of, uh, understanding of national security threats and can have those threats and developments at the back of, of their heads when they make commercial decisions. Obviously, nobody can force them. Currently, nobody can force them to have that as a decisive factor when they make commercial decisions, because obviously their objective is still to satisfy shareholders, but at least they can have it at the back of their heads. So starting with that and all the way up to gray zone exercises by the armed forces and industry, I think we can achieve a great deal. And by the way, it's in the private sector's interest to be part of the solution because they are already seeing the, uh, they are in the firing line of, of, of uh, gray zone aggression, gray zone attacks. So they know that something is happening. And I think it is not just in their interest, but very much something that, that they want to happen for the government to reach out to them and invite them to, to be part of the solution to, to help keep the country safe. And as a result, there are companies, there are operations. Exactly. I mean, the idea that, that we need to sort of involve these the private sector actors in developing these these resilience uh, policies, making them as partners rather than just sort of on the receiving end of the, of the government diktat. Marcus, let me turn to you and get your ideas about how we can involve civil society, non-governmental organizations, private sector, etc., more broadly. Well, sure. I mean, if we're talking about involving the private sector, I think we really need to start looking at tech and we need to start engaging, at least again, from the Canadian context, we need to start engaging with immediately uh, because without their participation and partnership in our in addressing the problem, we won't be able to do this properly because you know, social media and specifically their algorithms, they're what feed information, both good and bad based on our biases and they, and they prey on our emotions. And these really do represent an existential threat to our societies. And currently, they're the vehicles 
that are carrying conspiracy and disinformation warfare payloads created by both malign domestic and foreign actors into Canadian news feeds on social media. And if they don't voluntarily regulate themselves, then I think that we're going to have to look at imposing some sort of regulations over their their algorithms. So what we really need them to do right now is to dial back the algorithms on disinformation and conspiracy theory narratives that we're seeing right now. There is precedence to this. Taiwan has able to, to successfully do this. I spoke with their digital minister, Audrey Tang, about a, a year ago about this. She explained their system whereby they have a system, they're working with civil society and with the tech giants, specifically Facebook, to address disinformation. So when they monitor, they're monitoring Chinese disinformation attacks against Taiwan, they, they alert the ministries involved and Facebook as well. And Facebook has agreed then when these sorts of information attacks are detected to dial back the algorithms on that specific narrative. So that means basically pulling it from the top of a news feed on anyone's feed, but not censoring. So maintaining freedom of speech principles, but also, you know, controlling what is... Not amplifying it, these, right? Not exactly, not amplifying it. And I think this is something that we need to do. Clearly, Facebook, there is some openness to doing this. I think Twitter has been much better. Google and YouTube remain extremely problematic. YouTube is being used by the Russian government as the primary delivery platform for their state media RT. And right now, in, at least in Canada, where we at one point, I was going back about four years ago, RT was available on basic cable networks and basic satellites. So the, the most basic cable packages that you could receive had RT automatically feeding propaganda into Canadian homes. And the Russian government was actually paying our cable providers to do this. But after some advocacy, they've now bundled it with an international news package. In fact, you know, I don't think it's even with international news packages. I think you have to specifically order it, which makes it very difficult. I mean, I don't think most Canadians would specifically order Russian state media as a standalone product. Yet they're able to get it on YouTube. And the, the big problem with this is that YouTube is enabling that disinformation, but they're also helping monetize it. So they're actually making money off foreign propaganda on these channels. I spoke with, with uh, some of the people at Google last week, and we were looking at some of these issues. And uh, one of the most important and most significant broadcasters of conspiracy theories right now as part of Russia's sort of disinformation ecosystem is a, is a Canadian website called globalresearch.ca. It was named in a, in a recent State Department uh, report about Russian disinformation as being such. In fact, it, that report uh, states that Global Research had at 1.8 GRU officers writing for it. <laughs> so I think that sort of underscores... Do they have the, an office as well in, in the GRU building? I, I, I'm, I would presume so, maybe in the, in the St. Petersburg Troll Factory. Yes. But the point is that we went to the website, and I was just curious to see if, because I knew that Google Ads were being served on there and therefore helping financially support this conspiracy theory site. Sure enough, as of last Friday... Google ads are still being served on global, global research, a, a website and a platform that is being clearly identified as part of Russia's uh, disinformation ecosystem. So until tech giants like, like Google end their uh, enabling of this sort of activity, you know, I think we've got a lot of work to do. So if we're talking about the private sector, I mean, we need to start there first and foremost in, in addressing this problem.
and I believe we should also involve civil society more broadly. You know, yes, NGOs, you know, initiatives like yours, the Sympho Watch, and others. And, and this is not, you know, sort of. Uh, I'm not saying that because we here at the <laughs> institute also, uh, you know, have been at the forefront uh, in, in in highlighting these positions. But I think it's also crucial that these efforts to engage with and, if necessary, regulate private sector is not seen as some sort of top-down bureaucratic effort to stifle private enterprise or, or, or freedom of expression, but this is a whole of society approach that involves the broader segments of the society through the engagement of the civil society institutions that actually serves, as Elizabeth highlighted, that serves the common good. The, the idea um, should be should be broadly that rather than you know some, some bureaucrats sitting in Ottawa and deciding what what will, what is the best and what is not, but a broad conversation about about this. Absolutely, and I, I would again point to Taiwan as a as a model of success. There, here is a country that has brought together private sector, you know, Facebook again, and is working directly with civil society. Civil society is very important to that entire defense mechanism that Taiwan has set up in detecting and monitoring foreign disinformation and informing the government of when they're seeing this happen. And this is something that Canada needs to look into, ensuring that there's some sort of a, an independent body, maybe it's a task force that looks into this that can be trusted because, you know, I, you know further to your point about this being a top-down effort, any top-down sort of effort that's you know has a heavy government hand in it is going to feed into the polarization that we're seeing now. We're we're that far gone. So I think conspiracy theorists would actually use that to to help prove their point. And so I you know involving civil society is is a cr- critical uh, part of any sort of defense that we uh, we develop here in this country, at least. Yes, and exactly the, the idea that if you have a single point of failure. If, if this is all you know directed from from one you know centralized place also you know, open up vulnerabilities about the elite capture and and and, and corruption and so on and so forth actually what, what could could make us less resilient to deal with these problems rather than having a broader uh, broader sort of whole of society approach that brings together the the, the private sector civil society government media and others um, together to understand uh, the challenge that we're, we're facing. I want to wrap up with with one action-oriented item. One of the reasons why we did the workshop is to come up with actionable policy uh, recommendations on how to build a more, more resilient society and how to avoid failing to do so in the coming years. So um, let me start with Elizabeth. If you were sitting here today with uh, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, and, and, and NATO Secretary General. And if you were to give them one or two actionable policy suggestions on how we can increase our societal resilience and how we can build a more resilient society, what would that, what would that be? Well, of course, I'd propose gray zone exercises for the armed forces and industry, not just because I, I, I came up with the idea, but because I, I think it's, it's really the most actionable one that individual countries can pursue without having to commit a lot of, of money, because we have to remember that it's difficult to commit major sources of funding, especially now that national coffers are drained. So I think gray zone exercises with industry and the armed forces. And, and it's, it's a way, as we discussed previously, of, of involving the industry in a very productive way. Then another thing I would propose is 
resilience training. And it's, it's something that I've thought a lot about. And it's obviously not something that NATO can impose, but it is something that national governments can pursue. And, and it would be for the benefit of all of NATO. The way I see it, it could be a, a three-week training course for teenagers or indeed for citizens of all ages. And it could be even set up like an Erasmus program within NATO so that you could take the course either in your, in your home country or in another NATO member state. And that would not just increase resilience to a certifiable standard, because people would, would obviously learn and, and, and need to pass a test to, to complete the course, but also would also bring uh, citizens of NATO member states together in a way that has just never happened. And as a result, it would increase cohesion within NATO and I think increase appreciation of NATO within NATO member states, because we have to remember that NATO's support is, is uh, let's say, of varying levels within the alliance. In some countries, it's quite high. In some countries, not so high. Exactly. I mean, and NATO Defense College have online and offline and all sorts of functional capabilities that, that can be ramped up to deal with this sort of resilience and coordinate with resilience training. Marcus, let me turn to you with the same question. What would be your recommendations if you were sitting with, with the Prime Minister uh, today, together with the NATO Secretary General? And what would your, your actionable suggestions uh, on how to build a more resilient society? I could not agree more with Elizabeth's points. You know, coordinating overall a broader literacy training, I think that's, that's important in order to reinforce uh, that sort of resilience. There are other points where we can work internationally with our allies. You know, one of them is, is imposing a cost to this sort of activity. I think that to date, other than a few countries imposing sanctions, these sorts of actors are able to engage in this sort of information warfare with, with complete impunity. The U.S. imposed sanctions on Yevgeny Prigozhin over the past couple of months. These are the sorts of things that we need to be doing on an international level. So we, we now have the United Kingdom, the United States, the EU, and Canada, who have all adopted Magnitsky human rights sanctions. Australia is coming online soon. And I think J Japan just two weeks ago held a hearing and are kicking off their own sort of process to adopt this sort of legislation. If we work together, right now we're sort of working in silos internationally, but this tool can become very effective. If we can coordinate those sanctions, if all of those countries were to impose sanctions on Yevgeny Prigozhin or Malofiev or anyone else who is known to be actively engaging and using information warfare to advance the interests of nations like Russia, like China, like Iran, this will start imposing a cost to that sort of activity. And it may make those individuals who are doing it think twice uh, before they, they start engaging in that. The other thing that we need to start doing is working together to support civil society, to support free, independent media. Organizations, you know, the U.S. has done this historically quite well with VOA and, and Radio Free Europe. You know, unfortunately, that those institutions have become, especially VOA, has become quite politicized over the past several years, especially right now. But I think with the new Biden administration, this should be one area that, that we look at. Uh, the U.S. does this very well through those institutions. Uh, current time television offers a very good opportunity to sort of push back and start beaming pro-democracy narratives and, and the truth back at Russia. We should be doing the same with China. And in, for Canada, 
we have some very good experience with ethnic media and third language media where we can do this as well and possibly work with countries like the US and and the EU in in doing this and then uh, in the other point is is to coordinate a, a cyber strategy to defend ourselves against these uh, information warfare and to collaborate and again cooperate amongst each other to approach the digital giants and social media. I think that if we work together and push back, the, the social media giants will have no other option than to listen and to work with us rather than, than individually. So those are sort of three ideas that, that I might propose to uh, the Prime Minister and, and NATO. Excellent. Excellent, Marcus. And I, I cannot agree more with both of your suggestions on how we should proceed, and particularly with regards to that we should start imposing costs on those that are waging this political warfare against, against our societies. This has been a great conversation. I'd like to thank you both for taking the time, coming on onto the podcast, sharing your views and, and your very concrete and actionable suggestions on how we can build a more resilient society and how we can deal with 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 attacks and threats on our on our societal um, resilience and, and cohesion and i would like to thank to thank one more time uh, nato public diplomacy division uh, for their support for making the workshop and this uh, this podcast possible thank you very much for joining us today